0: This is episode four of Paper Cut for January 25th, 2021. Welcome to episode four of Paper Cut, the NIAC Libraries podcast. Our guest is Kim Garrison. She is an attorney from Grant & Lines, located in Rhinebeck, New York. Grant & Lines is a small firm with two attorneys. Their practice is dedicated to land use, environmental, and real estate law. Kim also enjoys watching movies, from the classics to cult classics. If the opportunity presents itself, she inserts movie quotes, references, and everyday conversations. And she's always looking for new recommendations and She's one of my very good friends. So I'm glad to have her on the (laughs) podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, I'm Tracy Dunston and I'm the head of adult services.
2: Hi, I'm Georgia. I work in the programming department with Rosemary.
3: And I'm Rosemary Farrell. I'm the senior librarian for programming and community engagement.
2: So today's episode is about lawyers and courtrooms we're going to change up our normal format a little bit and just do kind of a general discussion about the Supreme Court while also talking about books movies and television shows. So we are going to be having a program in April about the Supreme Court given by Kim. So this is kind of like a little bit of a teaser for that program I think it's on April 10th. we just figured that out. Um, So we're going to be asking some general questions. So Kim, are you ready? I am. Okay, all right, cool. Okay, so our first question is, who decides how many justices are on the court?
1: So it's actually um, decided by Congress. Uh, There's nothing in the Constitution that uh, specifies the number of justices that should be on the benches. In fact, um, it was actually, uh, sorry, going ahead of myself a little bit, but uh, and the process is that the, um, so Congress decides the numbers and then the president nominates a justice and then the Senate can, has to confirm that, that nomination um, just by a simple majority. And there's also really no set qualification um, to be a justice um, in terms of like for other political offices. Um, you know, there's no limit on the age or the education and they don't even have to be a lawyer honestly um they just have to have a practice in law but um you know they don't have to be a practicing attorney they don't have to even have graduated from law school that's not so much the case now but certainly back uh, in the beginning of the supreme court that was um you know it wasn't unusual for people to have not attended law school they usually just did an apprenticeship
2: like kim kardashian
1: well hopefully not We, we do want a little bit of uh, <laughs> clarity in the Supreme Court. The <laughs> Who knows, though? They are they are making uh, a lot of headway. So. Yep. Um, have there always been nine justices? Uh, no, actually. Um, over the course of history, there's been uh, a few changes to the number. That's what I, I started going into a little bit, and then I was like, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, when it was mm-hmm. first set up, it was actually set for six uh, justices. Um, that was through the Judiciary Act of 1801. And then, in eight, when John Adams lost the election to Thomas Jefferson, kind of a lot of the changes have actually been very politically motivated. So, John Adams was a Federalist, and uh, Thomas Jefferson was a Democratic Republican. So, to kind of stick it to Jefferson a little bit, uh, John Adams passed a legislation to reduce the number to five justices which was quickly overturned once Jefferson got in, so it got back to six. And then it had at one time been as many as 10 justices under um, President Lincoln. Um, That was actually made in response following the Dred Scott case. Um, Lincoln wasn't happy with that decision, so he actually uh, put another justice on to kind of change the dynamic of the court. And then um, shortly thereafter, um, under... Andrew Johnson, the Congress um, actually reduced the number to seven. And then um, under Grant uh, in 1869 is when it actually came to nine justices. And um, it's been that way ever since um, 1869. So I think a lot of people kind of assume that there's always been nine justices because of the amount of time that's passed. But in 1937, under FDR, FDR actually attempted to increase the number of justices, this is kind of like where that term uh, court packing comes from. And what had happened was that, um, as you all know, uh, FDR was um, trying to promote the New Deal legislation and the Supreme Court at that time was overruling a lot of those legislations. So FDR came up with a proposal that for any justice that was over the age of 70 and had been practicing or serving rather for 10 years they he would ask the justice to retire and if they didn't he could nominate an additional justice um, to serve on the bench so at that time there were six justices that met that criteria so if none of them retired it could potentially have increased the bench to 15 justices. It didn't pass. And I think a lot of people were pretty taken aback by it because it was quite a political um, move. During that time when it was being debated and, and proposed, um, Justice Owen Roberts ended up kind of switching the votes on the Supreme Court so that the New Deal legislations were starting to be approved or, or be upheld. And so, so the justices remained at nine, and that's actually where the term, a switch in time, stays nine. Nine being the number of justices. <laughs> little little uh, pop trivia, in case you do any trivia.
3: <laughs> so you just sort of answered, I think, the next question about, about court packing. Although it's back in the news lately, for obvious reasons, um, given that tr- uh, the current president has managed, I believe he appointed three justices over the course of the four years. Do you have a sense of whether they will try Biden's administration will try to increase the number of justices or how how do you personally feel about it?
1: You know, I think that um, I think that Biden has been a little quiet on whether he's going to do any increases or any um, court packing. I know it's, I think it's, it's mainly um, a topic of discussion because with um, Justice Barrett taking over for Justice Ginsburg, the majority is now very, you know, it used to be kind of a 5-4 uh, majority, but now with um, Justice Barrett, it's a 6-3 leaning towards the right. Now, I personally don't, I know in a perfect world, justices really should be neutral. Um, they really shouldn't be I I don't like to be like, oh, well, based on this political issue, I know where Justice Kagan is going to come in, or I know where Justice Thomas is going to come in. I know that it's so hard because everybody has a political ideology, and it's very hard to really separate that, but I always feel that justice is, I guess, again, in a perfect world, really should be neutral, but um, it has become very either right or left, depending on who you're talking about. So I think it is a little early to know exactly where Justice Barrett will be coming down on the court, but it probably will be a 6-3 leaning towards the right um, side of the political spectrum. I, again, just as I kind of explained, I do prefer to have a more neutral bench. And I do think that if the Biden administration were to increase it, it's very hard to not see that as a strictly political move. And my concern is that if they do increase it, would the next administration then have to increase it? And then the next, like when does it kind of, like are we gonna have a 29 justice bench at some point? But that's kind of, I think that's the concern is that when you do have court packing, it's seen as a very political move. And it kind of interrupts that idea of neutrality and of political independence. And I think that's what people are worried about um, when that topic comes up. Again, it has happened in the past and every time it has happened in the past it has been a political move. So I think you can't say court packing in politics without talking about one of, of the same. So, but again, I think that there, there, are, there is concern as to, if it is a certain leaning, like a right-leaning bench, you know, it does have people concerned about what that, what the implications could be um, with certain hot-button, controversial issues.
2: But basically, it's nothing new.
1: It's not, yeah. I think that people, you know, again, the the latest attempt to do court packing was um, 1937, so it has been a while. Um, but it's, it is legal in the sense that you know there's no limitations based in the constitution as to the number of justices that can serve um so it is it is a congressional decision thanks jim you're welcome
0: as i was telling you earlier i realize i don't really watch a lot of lawyer shows or read a lot of lawyer (laughs) books so i only had two things (laughs) on my list One thing, uh, when I was little, my sister and I, we, we were kind of weird. So we watched kind of random shows. So we're really into the show called Any Day Now that came out in 98. Um, and it, it's now on TV again, I guess, because of recent events. But it's about this um, uh, two friends who are black and white and they grew up in um, Birmingham, Alabama in the 60s. And it kind of goes back and forth between them as kids and then them in the, well, what was the present day. And it, one of them is a lawyer and it kind of, and so was her father in the sixties. So it kind of goes back and forth showing different ways. The law has changed um, how life is like for them and how black people got different rights as time progressed and also how things haven't changed. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm watching it now. And actually all, a lot of the stuff they're talking about is still the stuff we're talking about now. So it's a little, <laughs> a little <laughs> depressing. <Yeah. laughs>
2: was that a PBS show, Tracy? No, it was a lifetime actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, well, I've never heard of that before. I wonder. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds it, it, oddly <laughs> educational in a way.
0: I, I thought it was going to be because, um, like I said, we started watching it since it's on TV again, and I thought it was it wasn't going to hold up, but it actually does. And then the only other thing that I've watched is The Good Wife, which was um, it started in 2009 and it ran for seven seasons. And I didn't even watch the whole series. I've my sister Tisha; she watched the whole thing. She was obsessed with it, but I only watched the last two seasons or so, and that's about. Um, this woman who her husband was a governor and I think he cheated and got arrested and then she decides to go back to law school. She either wasn't law school or she went back to law school and became a lawyer and it kind of shows her um, working in law and her different practices and different stuff she does. I think it's a pretty good show. I liked it a lot. It ended kind of weird but overall. Isn't there a
1: sequel to that now?
0: Yeah I'm not sure what it's called. The Good Fight.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I know I've seen... I haven't watched um, either of those shows, but um, I know that The Good Wife had got, always got good reviews, and I, I, I thought that they had a, a spinoff of it.
0: I've heard it's one of the more... I mean, you would know more than, you would know more than me, obviously, but I've heard it's one of the more accurate shows. It's not How to Get Away with Murder. <laughs> yeah, we were...
1: <laughs> that one, I, 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 I did like How to Get Away with Murder in the beginning, but then it, it got uh, very cringy to watch in terms of the ethical stuff that was going on. I'm like, you know what, I, I think I'm gonna stop this show. <laughs> I gave it I gave it three seasons though, but, um, but uh, I, you know, I do think that a lot of shows and movies don't really, they, they show really just the surface. Actually, they show kind of the conclusion of the legal process. Mm-hmm. You know, they just really show the courtroom because that is the more interesting part of it, you know, if you were to just walk into my office, you would probably see me in front of the computer with a cup of coffee, <laughs> researching and writing. That's really <laughs> what I do. Um, but uh, you know, there a lot of you know. So there is a lot of heat uh, in the legal community as to you know how well it's represented. Um, but one of the movies that I think actually hit it on the head the most accurate is My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> the 1992 <laughs> comedy with Joe Pesci and uh, Marissa Tomei. Cause that actually does go into a little bit more of the procedural aspects of it. You know, the jury trial selections, uh, you know, the, um, you know, saying if your client is guilty or not guilty and, you know, you're learning along the way with, with Vinny as he messes up all the time. <laughs> and The judge has to, you know, hold him in contempt and everything, but um, so, legally speaking, I do like My Cousin Vinny, but it's just, it's a funny movie. I don't know if anybody has has seen it, but it's just, the characters are just so funny. Vinny and, um, and, uh, uh, I forgot what uh, Marissa Tomei's character is. I think it's like Mona, Mona Lisa, perhaps. I can't remember, but, or Lisa, maybe it's just Lisa, maybe it's not Mona Lisa, but anyway, it's just so, it's just, and, and the judge is really funny. He, um, he was uh, Herman Munster from the Munster <laughs> So this, it's, it's, it's kind of funny to see him outside of that uh, of that makeup and costumes, but um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a funny movie, but it also kind of actually touches a little bit more upon the legal procedures that usually get glossed over. The other day, actually I was watching, um, there was a 1957 movie uh, with Henry Fonda called 12 Angry Men, um, which is another really good movie. And it, I like it because it, it kind of touches upon another aspect of the law and the legal proceedings that you don't really see, which is the jury deliberations. So it's it's a really, it's it's set really just in the jury room. In fact, I, I was reading a little bit more about it. And I, I think they said that only three minutes of the film are actually shot outside of the jury room so it's all in the jury room it's set up on a hot I think they say it's like the hottest day of the year so you know you have these 12 uh, jurors in in the room and you can just you know their tensions are all rising higher and then they also kind of bring in a little bit of their own prejudices and and thoughts on on the case and so you kind of you really get even though it doesn't move or, you know, you don't really move out of that room in the course of the movie, you still, you get a really good character development for a lot of the characters and and you kind of get drawn into the case um, that they're liberating on, which again, you don't, when the movie starts, you don't know anything about, it. you know, the basics. That's an 18 year old um, boy who is accused of killing his father, but you don't, you don't hear the closing arguments. You don't hear anything of the case. You just go right into the jury room and then you have to kind of get like little pieces of it throughout. So you're kind of like in there with them. And it was just a great acting performances by Henry Fonda, Martin Balsam, Jack Klugman, the really all-star cast.
2: And Isn't that the movie where there's like the scene, it, it might be Peter Fonda that does it. He like puts the knife on the table yeah, or something. Yep. Oh yes. That was a great movie. Yeah. That was a and good one. It's actually
1: kind of funny too, because if you watch some uh, older TV shows, they, you know, there's there's been certain TV shows that have kind of mimicked that or, or parodied that. Um, I think the first one I remember seeing was like Happy Days, like Fonzie was on the jury and something was about something with a motorcycle or something. And then um, my dad just got me a bunch of, he's he wanted me to try to get into That um, Girl with uh, Marlo Thomas. So that was like, I think, I don't know if that was in the 60s or 70s, but anyway, they had another episode that was uh, like that, and, um, you know, I don't know if anybody here has served on the jury, but it was it was a pretty good representation as to how they can get, so anyway, that was a really good movie, too, that I, I highly recommend. Do you want to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird? Oh, yeah, sure. I, I um, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird's just, it's a classic Um both in, in movie and in book. Um, it, it is one of my favorite, um, books that I've, I've read. I just recently saw the movie. I, I wasn't a big Gregory Peck fan, so I was hesitant to watch it, but, uh, it was quite good. And I do think actually I was listening to, uh, your podcast, uh, the, with the, is the book better than the movie. And I, I like your discussion on To Kill a Mockingbird. Cause I do think that it was, a, a the movie was a good adaptation. It wasn't perfect. And I, I think that they did miss some of the characters that are in the book, like Calpurnia. I think they could have, I've I loved her in the book and in the movie that she has a much lesser role in it, but uh, the courtroom scene is it's still, it's very powerful and very moving. And I think that, um, you know, really, if you're gonna stick to a point in the book, that's really the point you have to stick to. So. Um, I just think the performances in in To Kill a Mockingbird um, really do stand the test of time. And it's such a powerful book that it just, I've read it several times and every time I read it, I I pick up on something new, which is, I mean, I think that just just tells you how great the book is.
3: Yeah, and having read it as, you know, I guess an eighth grader or probably freshman in high school, I don't remember exactly when, um, and then to read it again as an adult, like each time, to me a sign of a great book is each time you reread it at a different age, you know, it gives you something else, you know what I mean like you focus on a different aspect of the book depending on the age you are. So, it never gets old. <laughs> so I, I first I, I thought I was going to be like Tracy and not be able to think of too many things books and movies dealing with the law. But then once I started thinking, <laughs> I found a whole bunch of things and I had to actually cut stuff out. So I'll be quick because I, I wrote down too many. So one book that I wanted to mention is called Old Filth by Jane Gardam. or Gar- Garden. She's a British writer. I think she's still alive. She's you know probably in her 80s. She's written a lot of books. Um, this is one of her more famous books. Uh, more famous in England, she's not very famous here, but Filth stands for failed in London, try Hong Kong, which is uh, I guess an acronym that was popular um, in England for lawyers that could not cut the mustard <laughs> in England and they would go overseas to one of the many you know, colonies and uh, practice law over there. So this, this novel is, it's about a lawyer, old, whose nickname is Old Filth, who's sort of in his waning days of practicing, he's back in England. His mind is starting to go a little bit, but it, it was very. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like something it would be so engrossing, but it is. It's really entertaining. She's a wonderful writer, and it really gives you a. If you have no idea how British law system works, you you get the nuts and bolts in a very entertaining way. So I enjoyed it. Um, in Cold Blood by Truman Capote, which is extremely famous for being one of the first quote-unquote, like creative nonfiction novels. Uh, It's a genius book, incredibly engrossing. Uh, Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, was his research assistant when he went out to uh, Kansas to investigate this murder of a family, the, uh, the Clutter family in Kansas. And the book is about, it's about the family's history. It's about the community that they lived in. And then the third part is all about the two men who are accused of, of murdering the family. Um, and Capote's growing fascination and relationship with both the murderers as he's doing his research. It's excellent. Uh, the Crucible by Arthur Miller, which is a play that most people were, had to read in high school, I think. My kids, I think they read it. Um, but it's about the Salem witch trials. It's one of his most famous works when it was written, a lot of people think he wrote it about the Salem witch trials, but also in response to the HUAC uh, hearings, Joseph McCartney's anti-communist hearings in the 50s in Congress, uh, the witch hunt that was going on, sort of an examination of mob mentality through the Salem witch trials. There's also a great movie, uh, there's probably a couple, there's at least two adaptations of the, the play and film. And I know that the latest one was probably about 20 years ago already with Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder, which is really good. Uh, the last book is by Michael Gilmore, it's called Shot in the Heart. It's one of my favorite memoirs of all time. It's like, Once you start reading it, you can't put it down. He was the, he's the brother of Gary Gilmore, who was, um, he was arrested for, he had been arrested many times, but um, he was arrested eventually for killing two Mormon men in Utah. I'm not sure exactly when. It might have been the late 60s, early 70s. But anyway, he was convicted of murdering these two men, uh, first degree. And he demanded to be executed by firing squad. Because he was brought up Mormon, and there was this idea of blood atonement for your sins. Um, but Michael Gilmore is his younger brother, who eventually became a, like, a, one of Rolling Stone magazine's main music writers. Uh, but this this memoir is about his brother. It's just about his whole family and coming to terms with how his brother became the person he was. And the films that I loved, um, In the Name of the Father, which is uh, about the Guilford Four, uh, who were four Irish Irish uh, men that were accused of bombing the Guildford pub in 1974 outside of London. This is during the height of the Troubles, the IRA of fighting against British rule in Northern Ireland. And um, they had passed the government of England because there was a lot of bombings going on at this time. They passed a a Prevention of Terrorism Act which basically allowed them to to sweep up people that were suspects and hold them for indefinitely until they confessed (laughs) or until they really had to let them go. But anyway, these four men were picked up even though there was no evidence linking them to the bombing and they were tortured and they eventually signed confessions and they were sentenced to life in prison. And the movie is about that. And it's also about the fight to get them out. And it turns out that the person who actually was behind the bombings was also in prison at this, the same time. And he had confessed to the bombings during the original trial, the, that evidence was buried because the, the police didn't want to let, they didn't want to admit they made a mistake and they didn't want to let these other people out. So the movie's about the fight. They eventually get out of jail because their lawyer uncovers it almost by accident that the police had um, suppressed evidence. Reversal of Fortune, which is incredibly entertaining movie, Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close star. It's about the Klaus von Bulow case, um, which was all the, in the news in the 80s when I was a kid. Klaus van Bulow is this, incredibly wealthy, I think he was from Austria, uh, socialite and his wife uh, was f- slipped into a, uh, into a coma and she, could, she couldn't be rev- revived, she was basically on life support and he was convicted of trying to kill her. He got an appeal and a retrial and um, I don't know if it was appeal or a retrial, but anyway he hires the illustrious Alan Dershowitz, who is <laughs> all in the news these days. With his cohort Rudy Giuliani um, for defending Trump and Dershowitz basically gets him off the murder charge and it's it's a great movie it's so I mean I don't know how how accurate it is about the it shows all the Dershowitz working he was a professor of law and he was working with all his students sort of helping him Try this case and come up with the come up with the case that would get you off. And Jeremy Irons is just a genius in it. It's it's incredible. And my last one is Miracle on 34th Street because I love that movie from when I was a kid and proves that Santa Claus is real. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love that scene at the end where that's the it's so clever and, and sweet. Yeah. That is a good movie. I do like (laughs) on 34th Street. I didn't get a chance to watch it last uh, this past
1: Christmas but it is it's just it is funny when they bring in all the character all the the letters and
2: say the post office. yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny because okay so like I I love true crime and I have read a lot of true crime books and I've watched a lot of true crime documentaries anything like that but I feel like that is more about the crime and the after like after the court case what happened were people outraged or not I feel like it doesn't have that much to do with the actual legal process it's just kind of like fluff and actually Kim I'd be interested to hear your take on on true crime documentaries like Making a Murderer and like how they portray the legal process and but yeah, so I haven't, I haven't like really read a lot of books like that. And it's funny because like, I feel like the glamour side of it has already kind of like been done um, like when I was a kid, every week I would watch Ally McBeal with my parents, like religiously. But you know that show is ridiculous, and that's obviously not what a law office is like. It's actually
1: um, recommended in law school not to watch Ally McBeal.
2: Really? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs>
1: At least in terms of preparing for oral arguments, They're like, don't watch Ally McBeal. Don't. Oh don't yeah.
2: <laughs> I rewatched some of it recently as an adult, and I was like, this. Is, you know, it's 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 funny though. It's definitely entertaining. I mean, close to Flockhart and her little outfits. I remember I wanted to be a lawyer after watching the show. It's like, oh yeah, this is for me. I I love this, Um, and like yeah. But you know, I did really like what I thought was an interesting look at what the actual courtroom process was like. Is I don't know if you guys watched the the People versus O.J. Simpson the one, um, not the, not the documentary, but the the show was like Sarah, Sarah Paulson and Cuba Gooding Jr. Plays OJ Simpson and David Schwimmer plays Rob Kardashian, which is great. Um, that was interesting because it really showed how subject to what, or I guess really how not subject, but also subject to what is going on in the world at that time, how, how it can affect what happens in the courtroom and how the jury deliberates and thinks and, Um, I found that to be really fascinating and also it just kind of shows how a lot of things happen that seem to be sort of unfair to everybody else but the reality of the law I think is different than what people perceive to be you know what's what's legal what's illegal and what's right and not right Um, so I really liked that I would recommend watching that Um, I remember really liking the pelican brief I read the book years ago after seeing the movie um, which is uh, I think it's about like a Julia Roberts and um, Denzel Washington uh, start investigating a case after I think they two Supreme Court justices are, are um, assassinated, which I don't think has ever been, happened before in real life, although
1: I don't believe so. But um, I mean, there have been I mean, over the course of, of history, there's been, I, th- I think, like, a h- over 100 justices. So I, I don't remember seeing anything like that happen. But can rule it out
2: either yeah it's yeah I mean I've never you never heard about it right it's, it's not like a famous thing um but yeah I guess that would be kind of interesting to know um one book that I read that I really liked was a non-fiction book and it's not necessarily about uh like the the courtroom but it's called uh the 57 bus a true story of two teenagers and the crime that changed their lives uh by doshka slater and it's a book about a case that happened in i think california san diego san francisco one of those san cities and um these two kids uh lit somebody uh, lit like another kid on fire on a bus and they were making fun of him he was wearing like a skirt and he was sleeping and they lit him on fire and then got off the bus and then um, the kid survived, I think he has like burns all over his, his legs, but um, the case is about sort of what happens to juvenile offenders, um, and whether or not what happens to them is fair, which I find to be really fascinating, I mean that's a whole topic unto itself, um, but that was a really, really interesting look at um, about that whole system in the juvenile system that I did not know about so I would recommend anyone to to read that it's not a long book it's I think it's geared geared towards young adults so it's not too um hard to swallow but that's all I have I yeah because I, I, I feel like you can't you can't say that a true crime book is necessarily about the law so uh,
1: yeah, and and just uh, you know when you were talking about the people versus O.J., I thought that was actually very well done. Um, I was uh, very young with the O.J. Simpson trial. I mean, I kind of knew the the, he- the highlights of it, but I never actually watched the the trial. Um, so anyway, but I, I thought it was really interesting because I did kind of take a look at both. You know what goes on in in terms of you know prepping for the court, the court decision, or the court. Um, presentations and and there was also an episode where they they had about um, just about the jury too which I thought was very interesting but um, that was very good they have this series on Netflix I haven't watched it yet but it's called trial by media and I think it's kind of what you were talking about Georgia where you know especially with media and and reporting on the court cases they probably do kind of have an influence as to both what the jury think and what people think. I know that I would, there was uh, one court decision that was coming out. It was, it was heavily, uh, I can't remember which one it was, but it was heavily discussed. criticized. And then, yeah, well, just discussed a lot. And I remember they announced what the decision was, and I was like, oh, I can't believe it. But I'm like, well, actually, I didn't hear any of the evidence. I'm just going off of what was presented to me. So Um, I'd really like to, like I said, I haven't checked it out personally, but I I think it's an interesting question as to, you know, how much the media influences some of these more high-profile cases that are being discussed. Because, you know, I mean, yes, you can watch the trials usually, but most people don't. They just kind of pick up the headlines and stuff. So anyway, and um, in terms of true crime, I know you had asked me a question. I don't have the stomach for true crime. I learned that when I was watching something, I think The Staircase. And then I was like, oh, oh my gosh, this is- A lot of blood cold. in that one. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. i
0: like, uh, maybe not. <laughs> like I was talking to someone about like the um, Amanda Knox case and they were saying that, she was saying that the, the media portrayed it one way, but then when she read one of the, I think she, uh, it was Tisha, she read all all the different biographies that came out about, or not the biographies, the memoirs that like she wrote and then the parents wrote and then the, um, I think the other guy who was charged and just based on the evidence, she was saying like it's a completely different case. So yeah, I could definitely
3: see the whole- the media portrays one way. So Kim, we just have a few questions for you. Sure. <laughs> Some of them, what, this one you probably, you sort of touched on already, but um, it's like, what books and movies get wrong about the law process that you wish people understood better? Like, are there any any like really specific things that you could think of?
1: Um, well, I do think again, kind of like what I would with my cousin, uh, well, with my cousin Vinny, but just with like a lot of them, they just, they just kind of show just like the end, portion of it, which is the trial. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff, there's, a, of course, a lot of filing that needs to be done, there's a lot of research that needs to be done, um, you know, so they definitely, they they just kind of really probably show, like, five percent as to what actually goes on, and you know, a lot of times with the procedures, too, there's a lot of waiting around, uh, you know, we have certainly some cases that haven't, you know, we're waiting for decisions, like, two years out, you know, I mean, so, you know, a lot of times you see like bang, gavel, and then it's like, here's your decision. But of course, also, they don't show appeals or retrials or anything like that. So definitely, a, they just really scratch the surface of that. I will say one thing that really gets under my skin is in Legally Blonde, when L. Woods got a 179 on the LSAT for studying for a week, that really drives me crazy <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a fun movie but I can't really I I watched it before I went to law school and then I watched it after I'm like wait what <laughs> I studied six months and didn't get seventeen yeah. <laughs> so I do think and you know there are also a lot of the unsung heroes um you know there's a lot of you know legal secretaries paralegals a lot of researchers um you know that they they definitely don't don't cover um too much and and there's also uh, just a lot of areas of the law that they don't cover you know mostly you see criminal law because that's the one that usually goes to trials but you know there's real estate tax law you know not that those are necessarily as glamorous but you know they're equally important and you know but they're they're just other aspects of the law that people just probably don't even know about because they're they're not um, shown really uh throughout the um the media
2: it's funny i was listening to some i don't know it might have been like a malcolm gladwell podcast or something and he said like one of the most boring aspects of law and maybe you'll agree or maybe you won't um is patent law
1: i don't know anything about that oh, okay. so, <laughs> i took a copyright class in law school it it's very interesting but um i know it's it's i I don't know if I would say it's, it's boring or anything because um, I, I don't practice it, but I, it's definitely different than um, criminal law or personal injury law, or anything in the trial. You know, can you is. can you go back and
0: forth because the one show that I watch it's obviously not real, but like she, I feel like she goes to criminal law, and then she'll be in family law, then she'll be. I feel like that can't be.
1: Yeah, well, That's you it. know, when you, when you have um, when you're admitted to court, uh, I think really with the exception of. Tax law, where you do need actually a separate degree to do tax law. Um, you know, you could. I mean, there there are there are firms that are very specialized in an area. Like our firm does environmental land use real estate, so we're very specialized. Uh, well, we're not specialized, but we that's our focus, I should say, because you to be specialized, you actually have to have certain credentials. Um, but we, you know, we, we, that's the area that we focus on, but, you know, there are um, other law firms that, uh, you know, either bigger or even solos that they do general law. So, you know, you can have someone who does family law, probate, trust in estates, personal injury. So it just depends on whatever, um, you know, you feel comfortable with, but, you know, you also just want to make sure that when you're talking to a lawyer, you know, that, that they're well-versed in the subject matter that they are um, representing you on, you know, cause that's, you know, those topics are very, they can really be all over the spectrum. So, but yes, it is possible. Um, you know, once you have a law degree, you can, you can practice anything you want and it can be all in the same firm or a, you can, a firm can just kind of focus on one area.
3: Uh, do you have any nonfiction book recommendations for the general public to, to help us understand legal processes better? You know, um,
1: that's a, it's a hard question because there probably isn't really like a one-stop shop book because, again, you know, criminal law is different from real estate, which is different from personal injury, you know, so there's, there's not, I, I, I can't really think of a book that really kind of covers everything, um, and, you know, the law is changing, including procedures, so that's the other thing is that you you know you want to make sure that whatever you're reviewing um, is really up up to date. Um, but you know there are a lot of really good online resources. Um, you know a lot of courts have a lot of really helpful guidance documents. Um, you know so it's either for people who are just interested or you know you can represent yourself. Um, you know uh, you can be an attorney pro se. So you can represent yourself. Um, you know, and the guidance documents do provide some helpful information. Um, again, it, there's just, there's a lot of, um, just different areas though that it's, it's hard to really recommend a particular book on that. Um, but, you know, again, if you know what court you you would be interested in learning about, you know, a lot of them have rules and guidelines for what to follow, um, Certain agencies like Department of State, Department of Environmental Conservation, Department of Tax and Finance, they have a lot of helpful guidance documents out there too. Um, But it's it's definitely, it's a a lot um, because you have to kind of figure out what court you're going to be in, what the topic is, who, you know, the parties would be to kind of narrow down what you're, what you're, what you're looking for. Um, So... As I said, you know, you can certainly find that information online. You know, if you ever have any questions about procedures, um, you know, uh, talking to an attorney would definitely be a, a helpful um, mm-hmm. suggestion just to at least get, uh, you know, knowledge as to, you know, where you want to look or if you need to hire an attorney. Also, in law school, we there were these reference books called hornbooks, and they kind of were very good for covering a topic just generally, um, you know, like civil procedure or constitutional law. And it, I guess they're kind of like a treaty, but they kind of, they do kind of discuss it more generally and more broad brush so that you can at least understand the topic matter before you dive into a, a mm-hmm. specific area of it.
3: Gotcha. Uh, so recently there's been battles in the library world between certain publishing companies and they're especially related to ebooks and e-audiobooks and copyright issues. And have you heard anything about that? Or do you know anything about, I think um, I... was one of the big ones. That was...
1: Yeah, I actually, I have read a little bit about that. Um, I don't know if you want to go a little bit into what the legal battle is or I can tell you what I read about it. Um, but I guess it's that when libraries want to have ebooks, they're limited. Uh, based on the publishers, they're limited to like either having like one digital copy Mm
3: -hmm.
1: or um, I think, was it uh, uh, McMillan? McMillan. McMillan uh, They said that you could only have like one book for the first two months before you could get other books. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, um, maybe you guys can explain a little bit about, you know, what an ebook is how do you, how you loan out eBooks? Cause I think that's a topic I don't know. Cause I, you know, I, I always think like, oh, you have eBooks, you can just, you know, put it out all out, but it, it's not really like that from. No, it's, reading. it's
3: treated as if it were an actual physical book. So you buy, there's different versions of eBooks. There's some you, you pay, you like you buy for you sort of rent it for a year. It can get checked out as many times as possible in the year. Some you buy uh, a certain amount of checkouts some it's you know it's it depends on the publisher and the book but basically it's treated as if it's a physical book whereas you buy a copy you have one copy if someone takes it out they have it for whatever two four weeks it can't be loaned out to anyone else the, the digital copy the digital copy even though in theory it should be able to be loaned out indefinitely to anyone who wants it. And I understand why, you know, because writers need to get paid too. <laughs> so that's part of it. But they they seem to be tightening, especially the Macmillan thing were like piling on as far as restrictions and registration, restrictions to loaning. Like you could only get a book, like you were saying, they, they were restricting how many titles you could buy at a time and just all these different rules. It seems sort of counterproductive, but. Um, yeah, so there's, and they're always changing, like you said, there's laws always changing, depending, I think they were sort of pushing the envelope to see how, what they could get away with, and then I think they pulled back. Yeah, I brought. mean,
1: yeah, that's what I was kind of, what I had kind of read about, and I guess, you know, legally speaking, it's, it's kind of hard, because it, it is, it's almost like a licensing agreement, so, you know, you have to negotiate, and I'm sure that these publishers have probably more leeway in what they can give or what they can take, you know, in terms of what, what libraries can bargain with, you know, they have more of a bargaining chip, um, the publishers, but I'm I'm almost curious, you know, where you have other digital subscriptions like Audible or Nook, I wonder how they're treated, you know, if they're, I don't know if it's different because there's a, a subscription price that people pay. But that might be something to look at to see, you know, how are other areas with digital books treated? Maybe the libraries are being treated unfairly. Yeah, um, well, like
3: we, yeah we, for example, we have Kindles that we loan out, obviously Kindles are owned by Amazon, so they have their, their grip on that. But, you know, I, I can buy, I believe if I buy a title on for a Kindle, we, we have six Kindles, you can put it on up to six devices. But that's also Amazon. So that's a whole other, you know, they have agreements with with publishers and Amazon is obviously one of the most powerful corporations in the world. So I'm sure they have a lot of say in what goes on. But yeah, it's-, it's even,
1: Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just
3: thinking it's sort of, you know, part of the whole, as far as the law is concerned, the virtual world that it's, you know, it has exploded since the nineties um, with, Social media and you know just the internet being in everyone's home and in everyone's pocket, and the law is like scrambling to catch up. Like they're not, they they sort of were blindsided, not blindsided, but they they all these companies set themselves up and got going, and now the law is saying, wait a second, you shouldn't be able to do that. Wait a second, you shouldn't be able to do that, and we're seeing the harm that can come from obviously very um, in a big way recently, with. The harm that can come from unregulated uh corporations and
1: yeah we actually have um you know that's a very interesting point rosemary because we have the same problem like again what uh, we do land use law and a lot of times you know the world is changing like and uh you know but zoning laws and other things aren't changing as quickly so you know we have the same kind of questions um you know even in that in that aspect um but maybe even talking to legislatures, you know, trying to get more protections for for libraries and just protecting them from, you know, what these publishing companies can request or require, you know, before shutting you out. Like I said, it's 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 hard because it is kind of more licensing contract issues, which do have, you know, a lot of back and forth on, on both sides. But I, I personally speaking it it's definitely sounds like the corporations are just greedy (laughs) and you know um you know not kind of doing it for
3: the public good of what libraries offer but yeah that's uh there there is that uh, there's always that clash capitalism against the library world well thank you so much kim oh thank you (laughs) you you're a fountain of information it's (laughs) awesome (laughs) And I'm looking forward to having you do a program on April 10th, that'll be, that'll be really exciting. I'm glad, I'm very happy that you've agreed to do it. So right now I'm just gonna do a little promo bit for Black History Month programs that we are holding. Um, on February 11th at seven, we're hosting Colette Fournier who is an RCC photography professor. And she's going to be presenting a virtual presentation of her photo exhibit retrospective Spirit of a People. On February 17th at seven, we're going to be hosting a book discussion with the author Maisie Card. Tracy and I are doing it. She has a wonderful debut novel called These Ghosts Are Family. And I'm really excited that she's going to actually join us for the book discussion. And she's also uh, a librarian in Newark, New Jersey, which makes me love her even more. (laughs) And on February 23rd, we're having a program about Madam C.J. Walker who's the first African-American self-made millionaire in the United States. There was a Netflix series recently starring Octavia Butler called Self-Made, which is- was... Oh, watch it, sorry. Don't watch it, I know. <laughs> it's really <laughs> it bad. Very good. I was so sad because I was gonna watch, I I I don't know. I, I was gonna watch it before I, the the program the, that we're having, but maybe I'll wait. I, I heard, I was so excited when I saw that and I was like, oh, and I love Octavia Butler, but I heard it was bad too. Um, there is a really good Madam C.J. Walker website, that's www.madamcjwalker.com, that I think her great-granddaughter runs. It's really beautiful. There's a lot of great information there. Um, and also a little fact, her, her mansion, Villa Nuoro, is a National Historic Landmark, and it's in Irvington-on-Hudson across the river. I think it's being restored, so I don't think you can actually go visit it right now. But um, I've seen pictures and it looks spectacular. So that's what we're doing for um, Black History Month at the Nyack Library. And next episode for February, we're going to have our special guest is going to be local artist and our Nyack Library devotee, one of our big all-time <laughs> fanboys, Dan White, <laughs> who is going to be our special guest. He's a wonderful uh, visual artist, very funny, very just a great guy, and I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to Dan about books, movies, art, whatever he wants to talk about.
2: Yeah, that'll be that'll be fun. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, if you want to learn more about the NIAC Library and everything that we do, you can check out our Twitter and our Instagram at NIAC Library, or you can check out our Facebook, facebook.com slash Library. Uh, you can go to our website, nyacklibrary.org. We also have a YouTube channel, uh, which is called the NIAC Library from Home. If you have any questions, you can always send us an email at info at nyacklibrary.org. And I am Georgia. I'm
0: Rosemary. And I'm Tracy. Um, thank you again, Kim. You've been great. and you have so much knowledge and I really appreciate you yeah. doing this.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you for listening to episode four of PaperCut. We
2: can and stop recording, right? Stop. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> This is always a process when we're done. Okay, did I stop? No, I didn't stop recording.